Dr. Rao, thank you uh, for giving us the opportunity uh, to talk to you about the work and the work you and Climate Healers have done, especially surrounding the research conducted by you and your peers regarding the impact of animal agriculture on the environment. For most of us in the public, the narrative is constructed around carbon emissions by burning fossil fuels. And if we take a look at the Kai data published by the World Research Institute, that is referred to by the United Nations and therefore also as the guideline used in the Paris Climate Agreement, it seems like the data fits the narrative. Um, agriculture in total, including livestock and crops, only accounts for 11% of the total emissions. But if we take a look at the paper that comes along with the kite data, slaughterhouses, infrastructure, energy and heat, and even land use change are not included in that 11% agriculture figure. So how does your research vary from previous analyses and uh, what insights can we get from this new data? Yeah, so I, uh, I mean, my research, I started with the, um, a peer-reviewed debate that happened between Goodland and Anham and the UNFAO scientists back in 2011-2012. So that debate happened in the Animal Feed Science and Technology Journal. Because Goodland and Anham, in their um, World Watch Institute report, had pointed out that the, the Food and Agriculture Organization was missing uh, a lot of uh, data and it was also miscounting a lot of data. So they were pointing out that you know, some data they were taking from Minnesota and extrapolating for the whole world. You know, there were lots of issues you know, um, that any engineer would see through right away. Because you know, I'm an engineer <laughs> and uh, as engineers, I have to sift through science to really understand what the reality is before I build something because uh, I am responsible for ensuring that what I build works. Okay, so I'm trained to do that. So I was watching that debate and, and in the debate, um, the FAO scientists uh, first issued the first rebuttal to Goodland and Anand's work. And Goodland and Anand went through the rebuttal one by one and addressed it. And then the editor of the journal asked the FAO scientists if they would respond to con and continue the debate. And they declined to continue the debate. So at that point, I realized that Goodland and Anang were right, that, uh, that their calculations were much, were much more valid. It's the established science compared to uh, the FAO scientists who are basically CAIT, you know, it's all the same, the same uh, cast of characters who show up. And, um, so if I look at their work, uh, Goodland and Anand's work here, and they wanted to include that, when I mean, they included that. And they said, whether the CO2 comes from the nose of an animal or comes from the tailpipe of a car, it's the same CO2, the atmosphere doesn't care, okay? But the um, industry was arguing that uh, animals are part of a natural feedback loop with photosynthesis and therefore the respiration should not be counted. Now I had trouble with that too, because you know, a natural feedback loop, they were assuming that the natural feedback loop is perfectly balanced. And as an engineer, I know there is nothing that's perfectly balanced. That's true. <laughs> said, what the heck is perfectly balanced, right? So to me, that is unscientific to say something is perfectly balanced. So I wanted to know, has anyone studied how much imbalance? And I noticed that no one has studied it. You know, it's like this question never gets asked. 
So I realized that there was a lot of bias in science, you know, that was going on. So, but anyway, uh, Gurlan and I, and, uh, I spoke to Jeff Anhang afterwards uh, in my research and, and opportunity cost. Okay. So at that point, I said, why don't we look at opportunity cost directly as opposed to using proxies? What the imbalance is, right, in the uh, natural feedback loop between photosynthesis and, and respiration. And let's just look at the opportunity cost of land use instead, directly. So that's what I tried to do in the paper. So I took Goodland and Anang's work, I took out the respiration component, I took out, um, there, is an, there is an overlooked land use component, I think there was a, from uh, biofuels. So both those added up to 11.5 gigatons of CO2. So I took that out and I replaced it with an opportunity cost estimate that I did based on uh, Searchinger's paper. But uh, there are multiple lines of evidence that told me that the opportunity cost is actually much higher than even that calculation, okay? Because if you calculate that, you know, if you just return the original forests that used to be there on that grazing land, uh, that at maturity can sequester 265 gigatons of carbon, about 1 trillion tons of CO2. And we know that when forests come back, they store about 80% of their um, CO2 within the first 20 years. So if you take 80% of 1 trillion tons and divide it by 20 years, I mean, <laughs> you get 40 tons right there, right? 40 tons of CO2 right there, 40 gigatons of CO2. And uh, uh, that's only on 41% of the land. So what about the other 59% of the land, right? So if you think about it, I mean, the opportunity cost is huge. So um, you talked a lot about the uh, land use change that is kind of not really uh, in the correct way interpreted by the United Nations or in this case, and um, the IPCC. Um, right. And this also plays a role within the Paris Climate Agreement, which um, luckily in, in the sense um, most nations agree to, um, especially with the controversy last year with the uh, United States. Um, but assuming that all nations would stick to the goals, and I obviously read your paper, I had to read it uh, actually three times to really get the all the numbers straight and um, get in a solid overview about all the different uh, figures. But if all nations would stick to the Paris Climate Agreement, um, the way I understand your words, this wouldn't in any sense reverse the damage already done. So we have to make or agree to more drastic um, drastic changes to actually get this this climate crisis under control within the next 10 years um, as the United Nations set the deadline, so to speak, I believe in 2030, something around that. Um, so is it correct that we would need to do way more? And you talk about the paper, about the killing machine and um, the burning machine. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you elaborate more about the difference between the two and why it's so important that we get the, the order straight? Right, yeah. So the burning machine, so what I call the burning machine is all fossil fuel burning and industries and so on that goes with it. And the killing machine is the killing of 84 billion, 80 billion land animals, uh, one to three trillion sea animals and 10 billion trees, you know, uh, 10 billion old growth trees and countless new trees. You know, mm. I mean, 22% of the land we are using just as, as logging and timber and paper and things like that. And uh, uh, so, so if you look at that and you say, okay, how would you shut this down? So I'm looking at it as an engineer would, 
okay? And this is actually engineering one-on-one. This is not complicated stuff. I bet you that if I asked this question in the entrance exam in India for uh, entering engineering school, half the kids would get it right. So this is why I'm saying it's, it's a disgrace that the IPCC hasn't figured this out yet, okay? Uh, or they are pretending not to figure it out. So if you look at the burning machine, you know that the burning machine is causing 87% of the CO2 emissions, about 23% of the methane emissions, and almost 100% of the sulfur dioxide emissions on an annual basis. And then you can calculate, okay, how much is each one contributing in terms of heating? The annual increase in radiative forcing that happens uh, because of these emissions. And when you calculate that, you discover that the burning machine is actually cooling the earth on an annual basis by about 0.9 watts per square meter. Okay, this is because of the sulfur dioxide, because that's what Hansen calls the Faustian bargain of the burning machine of fossil fuels. Then you look at the killing machine and you say, okay, how much is the killing machine causing? Now, from Goodland and Anang's work, I know that killing machine is causing 29% of the CO2 emissions on an annual basis and 37% of the methane emissions. And then the opportunity cost is, you know, on 37% of the land, you can sequester carbon, right? So what I'm pointing out is that every time we make a choice that we are going to run the killing machine for our consumption, we are actually choosing not to sequester that carbon, right? That's the opportunity cost. And that is a true emission. You know, that's, we are saying we'd rather not sequester it. Instead, I want to emit, you know? So, so that is uh, 34.5 gigatons of CO2. And that is, you know, to me, that's the biggest lion's share. So it turns out that the killing machine, if you shut it down on an annual basis, you will start cooling the earth by 0.1 watts per square meter. Okay, on an annual basis. So the right way to shut these two machines down is to first shut down the killing machine as soon as possible, and then shut down 11% of the burning machine every year for the next nine years. Now, if I look at what every nation has pledged to do, there is no danger that they're shutting down the burning machine much faster than what I'm saying. Okay, they're talking about maybe half by 2030 or, you know, <laughs> or 100% by 2060, you know, just far off timelines, right? So there is no danger that the, that the burning machine is being shut down much faster than, than, uh, than optimum. But you have to shut down the killing machine as soon as possible. That's the conclusion of the paper, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I totally agree and understand. Um, and we on our website actually have a, well, a death toll that is uh, in real time counting the the death death of the the animals. And it's um, last year was uh, over 70 billion chickens only used for for as a poultry as chicken uh, flesh, meat, whatever you want to call it. And um, obviously, uh, we can see a a very strong and stark contrast between what the IPCC says and if we take a look at the data, what the data actually tells us. Mm -hmm. And it naturally feels like the, the statements from the United Nations are sort of crafted. And if we take a look, and you mentioned this in your paper as well, the collaborations between the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organizations and the um, different 
well, organizations surrounding the poultry industry and the beef industry. Right. So in the spirit of our organization's name, Project Responsibility, the paper suggests strongly that government institutions, um, news media, and even the scientific community itself uh, do not live up to their responsibility towards honesty and accuracy and acknowledge the gravitas of animal agriculture in the context of greenhouse gas emissions. What, in your opinion, might be the reason for that? And how can we work together to combat this um, yeah, rather unfortunate situation? Yeah, um, if I look at, you know, what is the reason for this? Why are they not talking about it? Um, it is, uh, you know, I, I refer back to what Al Gore told me when I first got trained by him in 2006, November. He told me his objective is to preserve civilization as we know it. Unfortunately, civilization as we know it is colonialist, racist, speciesist. That's the system we have today. And that's what he's trying to preserve. Okay, that's what they're all trying to preserve. And I don't blame him. No, I'm saying, you know, everyone, every system has a, has a, innate need to stabilize itself. So to stabilize itself, it is going to, it's going to uh, show you what is what you need to see so that the system does not die off, right? So by just focusing attention on the burning machine alone and saying, okay, if we just clean it up, we can solve this problem. They are telling a story of economic growth of, uh, you know, replacing energy infrastructure with fossil from fossil fuels to uh, solar panels and wind energy, which will actually require fossil fuels to grow them too. <laughs> so, so in a way you are now acquiescing to a new model in which the economy continues to grow, uh, wealth gets accumulated more and more at the top. And uh, it's just that there'll be more people dying right at the bottom. Okay, so it's more and more oppressive at the bottom. So it's not just animals that die off, but also people will start dying off, right? Uh, right now, we, the killing machine kills about 40 million human beings on an annual basis. If you count the people dying from hunger, from diabetes, from heart disease, you know, if you count all that, it's because it's all a function of the killing machine. Um, so that's going to increase. So, so they're hoping, they're looking for a sustainable degradation of the environment and continuing the current system, which is how the system is set up. The system is unfortunately set up not, not on the truth. It's based on falsehoods, bunch of deception and lies, right? It's all about marketing to you uh, as to why you should continue with the system, okay? So what is called for is a system change. It's a system transformation, a systemic transformation which they are unwilling to accept, that they're unwilling to face. And so when we identify that animal agriculture is actually the leading cause of climate change also, because we know it is the leading cause of species extinction, of ocean dead zones, of deforestation. I mean, you name it, every other environmental ill, animal agriculture is rec recognized and acknowledged to be the leading cause. So this is why this, the press, mainstream media, focuses on climate change because they're telling a story of fossil fuels. So they're focusing our attention on climate change and then they're telling a story of fossil fuels so that they can sell you more things, okay? 
this is uh, and 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 i'm saying you know this, this is not unfortunate this is the way it is okay that's how the system is set up and so what we need to recognize from the grassroots is that it's our responsibility not to play into it not to go along with it and to build our own system build a new system that is fundamentally stable that is fundamentally just that's fundamentally um sustainable so because unless we create a civilization in which nature thrives as a result of human presence we are going to die the killing machine is going to kill all of us if we keep saying the killing machine is sacrosanct you know don't touch it <laughs> never touch the animal agriculture industry you know this sort of nonsense that's going on in in governments right now it's basically designed to kill us all off so we are actually we are actually creating a documentary called they are trying to kill us <laughs> so very fitting people, yeah <laughs> so we want to make it explicit they are trying to kill us okay so wake up and yeah, we need to fix this ourselves from the grassroots yeah yeah you mentioned a very important point this is uh, the grassroots movement and um one thing that comes to my mind is um the it's actually almost quite a conspiracy it's it's hard to talk about these things because they're so politicized but um if we take a look in europe it's called the e250 um uh, well supplement sorta that is um essentially pumped into ham uh that has been connected to to many many different uh health issues all the way back to the reagan administration but before reagan became um the president it was almost banned but then he rolled back the the policy and since then nothing changed so it's it's quite literally true that the killing machine is not only killing uh, billions of animals but also humans um as sort of an indirect um well cause um but to get back to the the grassroots idea what in your opinion and with your experience would you say is the best thing that every single one of us um so every single average citizen who is not involved in corporate uh, decisions or in government um committees what can we do to reduce our impact on the climate crisis oh the number one thing you can do is to go plant based and vegan okay number one thing you can do nothing there is nothing that does not improve when we go vegan so um if when we shut down the killing machine okay so that's when we go vegan we are basically saying shut down the killing machine i don't want to use animals for any purpose whatsoever not just food okay i'm saying i don't want to wear i don't want to wear animals i don't want to put them on my shoes so shut down the killing machine so when you say shut down the killing machine that's when you are uh, saying that the entire industry should go away the killing industry should go away uh, and only then will we get the benefit of the land being returned back to nature right and so we need to create this market signal that's stronger and stronger to the industry saying we don't want you anymore so as more and more people say that then it will be harder and harder for governments to continue to subsidize them because right now they are not a viable business they are a viable business only because of subsidies okay fishing industry we know could not could not operate without government subsidies 
because fishing is only providing 3% of the food we eat. And for that, they have to go scour the entire ocean. So, and it takes a lot of effort and money to scour the entire ocean, you know, just for 3% of your food, right? So they rely on government subsidies heavily. But as more and more people go vegan, then we question, and then they, we become a political force that they cannot ignore anymore. Okay? So that's how you force change to happen from the grassroots. So it, but it's about first networking among ourselves and understanding why we have to do this to build up our own political power and then uh, creating a new system that's fundamentally just, okay? Just for the animals to begin with and just for all human beings. So I say, you know, the UN, the US uh, independence movement was founded on the idea that all men are created equal and that uh, we have been given by our creator with in inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I said, I say, well, let's implement it. <laughs> you know, it's about time implemented. It's been 250 years. Uh, we say all men are created equal and we created the most unequal society in human history. You know, surely we know how to do better than that <laughs> as engineers, right? And uh, we say everyone has a right to life and then we teach our children, you all have to go earn a living, which is exactly the opposite of a right to life. Because when you tell people you have to earn a living, we are telling them you have no right to life unless you do what the master wants. Yeah, especially uh, all these um, jobs that are involved in, in things like abattoir slaughterhouses and, yeah. and the transportation. Those are all low-paying um, minimum wage, if at all, sometimes jobs. And most of those uh, employees who work in, in slaughterhouses in the U.S., for example, um, they are either immigrants or they are just in a very um, difficult society or environment and they have to struggle anyway. And then they are put in such devastating situations where you have to work at a place every day where blood like re literally um, comes down the, the drain and you hear the, the screams of, of pigs, especially and cows and right. chicken. And you see death every day, every single day, thousands and thousands of animals. And this is actually direct impact on, on humans as well, as you said. Absolutely. So I totally uh, agree with you on your, on your plant-based and therefore vegan message. And uh, uh, thank you so much for, um, for presenting your, your thoughts and, and ideas to us, because we have to, as you said, work together to make, um, make people aware of that because myself, I, I wasn't aware of this years ago before I, I became um, aware of the, the situation. And then the only possible solution is to become vegan naturally. Right, right. No, but you know, we are a gathering tribe, okay? So we are growing exponentially. So yeah. there's no question in my mind that we are going to get to a vegan world as soon as possible. Um, hopefully within the next five years, that's my goal. And, I, uh, I would uh, love that if that would be the case, but we are trying our best to, to uh, work towards that. And I know you too. Um, but yeah, again, thanks so much uh, for giving us the opportunity. Um, is there anything else that you would like to mention or that comes to your mind or 
has everything. Yeah, I, I can, you know, I'll say that the paper that I wrote is basically an engineering analysis of climate science. Okay, and I try to look at it as dispassionately as possible as an engineer would. And I, I think my fellow engineers would appreciate the paper from that perspective. And I, I was looking at it from a systems engineering perspective. So I was looking at all these different data that's coming out at me and saying, what, what do I think is closer to the truth from all these competing data? Uh, and so everything in the paper comes from a peer reviewed source. Okay, that has been vetted by others. And, uh, and I'm just putting the thing together, you know, and I was pointing out that the IPCC is, has failed to do that. Failed to put it together based on who's funding the science. You know, so, so there's a, we need to have some natural skepticism when we read papers and when we accept papers.